If you have your Bibles this morning, and I hope you do, turn with me to the book of Joel, Joel chapter 1. We're going to be walking through this book, this entire book, this morning. There are just three chapters in it, Joel chapter 1. How many of you remember 9-11? Remember 9-11? If you were alive and you were older than a preschooler, most likely you remember where you were, you remember what you were doing when you got the news. I was meeting with a group of pastors when, when we heard that a plane had crashed into one of the Twin Towers. I immediately left that, that meeting. I went back to my office at the church. I turned on a TV and I was in shock as I was watching it replay. And then all of a sudden we saw another plane crash into another tower. And after that, we got news of a plane crashing into the Pentagon and then another plane crashing in Pennsylvania. Later on, we found out that it was the result of a terrorist attack. 9-11 is a day that we will never forget if we were alive. It is a day that, that will be etched in our minds forever. And that is much like the time that Joel is writing in as he opens up his book. Now let me remind you, Joel, like all the other minor prophets, is telling us that, that what we are reading is not his opinions. He tells us that the Lord God gave him this message. And then in verse 2, Joel says this. He says, hear this. You leaders of the people, listen, all you who live in the land, everyone, in all your history, has anything like this happened before? Tell your children about it in the years to come, and let your children tell their children. Pass the story down from generation to generation. In other words, Joel is saying that what you have experienced is going to be etched in your mind forever. The people of Israel had, had just experienced a 9-11 kind of day. And Joel is about to use this national disaster that they have gone through to deliver a spiritual message from God. Now the tragedy that they were experiencing was not from the hands of a terrorist group or an enemy army. It, it came in the form of locusts. A swarm that was so great that, that it devastated the nation economically and it, and it sent them into a famine. Now it's hard for you and I who live here in America to understand the devastation that a swarm of locusts can bring. But, but locusts have threatened agriculture production in Africa and in the Middle East and in Asia for thousands of years. The livelihood of one-tenth of the world's population can be affected by this insect. Now, if you've never seen a full-grown locust, it's about three inches long, and it looks like a heavily armed grasshopper. One of the last locust swarms occurred in 2004, 2005, and it caused significant crop losses in West Africa. It literally had an impact on that entire region. A single swarm of locusts can cover over 460 square miles and literally darken out 
the rays of the sun. In every square mile, there can be between 100 and 200 million locusts. 460 square miles of locusts. In every square mile, 100 to 200 million locusts. In a swarm of locusts, there can be 50 to 100 billion locusts. And they eat everything that is living. They eat every plant, all vegetation, down to the root. They even eat the bark off of trees. And when they eat all of the vegetation, all of the roots, all of the bark down on the trees, then they enter houses. And they begin to eat the food in the houses. They begin to eat the clothes that are there in the houses. They even begin to eat the wood of the houses. And that is the devastation that, that these locusts were bringing to Israel. But Joel tells us that, that this devastation that the locusts are bringing are simply a foreshadow of what God is about to do in the near future if Israel doesn't wake up and turn to God. God says, I am going to bring an army into your nation that will devastate you and destroy you even worse than these locusts. But then Joel moves into the future even more and he tells us about a day in the future when, when God is going to judge the whole world and everyone who has rejected him, everyone who has refused him will be judged by God and God will make everything right. Now this morning as we continue this series, A Season in the Minors, where we look at the minor prophets, there are two things that I want us to do as we look at the book of Joel. First of all, I want us to take a walk through these three chapters so that we can better understand what God is saying. And then secondly, I want us to discover four key truths that teach us something about God. Now let's first of all take a walk through Joel. And, and the first thing we see in the first one and a half chapters is an alarm is sounded. And, and we see this in chapter 1 verse 1 through chapter 2 verse 11. Listen to what it says in chapter 2 verse 1. Sound the alarm in Jerusalem. Raise the battle cry on my holy mountain. Let everyone tremble in fear because the day of the Lord is upon you. You see, Joel says that a day is coming that will bring fear to everyone. It is the day of the Lord. Know that phrase, day of the Lord? It's found five times in this book. It's found 26 times in the Old Testament. The only book that it is found more often in is the book of Zephaniah. It's found six times in the book of Zephaniah. We're told about the day of the Lord several times in the New Testament. The phrase... It literally speaks of God's judgment. Sometimes it, it speaks of God's present judgment that, that can come through natural disasters like, like a locust plague or, or an enemy attack or, or some other situation or circumstance. And, and that's what he's talking about in chapter 1. I, I remember when 9-11 occurred and hearing some preachers say that this attack 
was the judgment of God on America. Now, now I don't know. I don't know if this specific attack, attack was the judgment of God on America, but what I do know is, over and over again in the Old Testament, we are told that God uses situations and circumstances to carry out His judgment on His people and an unbelieving world. We need to understand that sometimes God uses situations and circumstances, and other times God causes situations and circumstances. Now you may ask, why does God do this? Why would God bring a plague of locusts on Israel? Why would God send an enemy army to destroy Israel? Why would God bring a future judgment upon the world? And this is going to shock you, but I'll tell you why. The reason why God brings his judgment is because God loves us. How many of you are parents? How many of you have ever spanked your children? For you that didn't raise your hand, you need to go back to school. <laughs> now, when you spank your children, you don't spank them because you're mad at them. You don't spank them because you're angry with them. You don't spank them because you're frustrated. If you do, you're being a terrible parent. You see, a loving parent spanks their child because they love them. And they recognize that if their behavior isn't stopped, it could have devastating effects. And that's why God disciplines us. That's why God judges us. Now notice what it says in, in verse 12 of chapter 1. Because of this plague of locusts, the people's joy had dried up. Here's what I know. No child of God is ever going to experience lasting joy when they're not walking with God. That's why we discovered David praying after he sinned with Bathsheba. He said, restore to me the joy of my salvation. David didn't say, restore my salvation. He said, restore the joy of my salvation. Our relationship with God is secure if we are children of God. But what we can lose is the joy of that walk. And that's what the people had lost. They had lost their joy. Now notice what it says in verse 13. Joel says that they need to weep and, and wail before the altar. They need to announce a time of fasting. They need to call the people together for a solemn assembly and cry out to the Lord. In other words... What Joel is saying is you need to be broken because of your sin. Both individually, corporately, nationally. You need to come before God broken because of your sin. This was good advice then. And it's at least as good of advice today. But as we continue to read, it's also clear that, that Joel is not just telling us about a present judgment, this locust plague he's telling us about another judgment a day when God is going to pour out his wrath on the world a day when God is going to pour out his anger on those who have rejected him and refused him that's what the day of the Lord is most often referring to in God's word 
In chapter 1, verse 15, it says, the day of the Lord is near. The day when destruction comes from the Almighty. How terrible that day will be. Now notice a couple of things. He says, first of all, this day of destruction is going to come from the Lord. It's the Lord's judgment. And it is a terrible day. Chapter 2, verse 11 tells us that the Lord is at the head of the column bringing on this judgment. And it is an awesome, terrible thing. You need to understand that one day, someday, in the not-too-distant future, the Lord's anger is going to be poured out on mankind. It hasn't happened yet, but it will. If your Bibles are open, you can mark this on your note sheet or you can turn here. But in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, Paul is trying to help the believers in Thessalonica better understand this day that is coming, this day of the Lord. And this is what he says. He says, now dear brothers and sisters, let us clarify some things about the coming of our Lord Jesus and how we will be gathered to meet him. Don't be so easily shaken or alarmed by those who say that the day of the Lord has already begun. Don't believe them. Even if they claim to have a spiritual vision, a revelation, or, or a letter supposedly from us, don't be fooled by what they say. For that day will not come until there is a great rebellion against God and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the one who brings destruction. And so Paul was telling us the day of the Lord is coming but the day of the Lord is not going to come until there is this great rebellion and the man of destruction, the Antichrist, is revealed. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 9 and 10, Peter's talking about this day of the Lord. And he says, the Lord isn't really being slow about his promise, as some people think. No, he's being patient for your sake. He doesn't want anyone to be destroyed. He wants everyone to repent. But the day of the Lord will come as unexpectedly as a thief. Then the heavens will pass away with a terrible noise and the very elements themselves will disappear in fire and the earth and everything on it will be found to deserve judgment. God's saying the reason the day of the Lord hasn't occurred yet is because God is patient. And he wants each and every one of us to repent. Now, Revelation chapter 6 through chapter 19 refers to this, this judgment time. In, in Revelation, it's called the wrath of the Lamb or the wrath of God. And to be honest with you, there are some today that, that never talk about God's wrath and God's judgment and God's anger. There are some today that even say that a loving God could not possibly judge the world. But dear friend, listen to me. If there wasn't a judgment coming, then why would God send his son to die a cruel death on a cross so that we could be spared that judgment? So we see an alarm is sounded. But let's move on. In the second part of the book, we see an appeal is given. And we see this in chapter 2, verse 12 through verse 27. And and what this tells us is that God doesn't want to bring judgment. God doesn't want to judge any 
one. God wants us to experience his love. God wants us to have a relationship with him. L- listen to what it says in Joel chapter 2, verses, verses 12 and 13. This is why the Lord says, Turn to me now while there is time. Give me your hearts. Come with fasting, weeping, and mourning. Don't tear your clothing and your grief, but tear your hearts instead. Return to the Lord your God, for he is merciful and compassionate. He is slow to anger. He is filled with unfailing love. He is eager to relent and not punish. Several things are important here. God says, turn to me while there is still time. What does that mean? Well, it means what it says. Today there's time. But there's coming a day when it will be too late. There's coming a day when it will be too late to experience God's mercy. It'll be too late to experience God's compassion. We need to seek the Lord while he can be found. We need to call upon the Lord while he is near. And let me just say to you that if you're here this morning, it's not too late. Next, it says that God wants your heart. And the reason that God wants your heart is because if he has your heart, he has you. And the truth is, all too often, we've given our hearts to other things in this world. And there are some of you, and perhaps many of you in here this morning, who have done that. It's shown in how you spend your time, how you spend your money. Show by what's on your mind. God says, give me your heart. And then God says, come to me with fasting. Now we come to God with fasting not to somehow earn God's favor, but, but fasting is simply the result of wanting God more than anything else in life, even food which we need to live. And so what God is saying here is, Want me more than you want life itself. So God says, repent. Turn to me. Give me your heart. He issues that appeal to us individually. And then he um, issues this appeal to us collectively. Look at verse 15 and following. Joel says, blow the ram's horn in Jerusalem. Announce the time of fasting. Call the people together for a solemn assembly. Gather all the people, the elders, the children, even the babies. Call the bridegroom from his quarters and the bride from her private room. Let the priest who minister in the Lord's presence stand and weep between the entry room to the temple and the altar. Let them pray. Spare your people, Lord. Don't let your special possession become an object of mockery. Don't let them become a joke for unbelieving foreigners who say, Has the God of Israel left them? Notice what he says. He says, gather all the people, the young and the old, the priest and the laity. Gather them all together. May I ask you a question? Do you think perhaps now is a good time for us to do that again? To gather all of the people of God together to cry out to God for our nation. 
for our world? It seems like that the church today is just going through the motions, playing games, waiting for the end to come. And maybe God is calling us to take seriously this call to come before him as a body, as a people, and pray and fast and cry out to him. In 2 Chronicles 7 to 14, God says, If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, I will heal their land, and I will forgive their sin. Oh, we desperately need to do that again today. And then God gives a promise. Look at verse 25, chapter 2. Says the Lord says, I will give you back what you lost to the swarming locust, the hopping locust, the stripping locust, and the cutting locust. It was I who sent this great destroying army against you. And so, in other words, I can give you back what they took. What God is saying is when we humble ourselves before God, He not only forgives us, He restores to us what was taken from us. But there's a third part of the book, and we see that in Joel chapter 2, verse 28 through the end of the book. And that is an announcement is made. Look at verse 28 of chapter 2. It says, then after doing all these things. In other words, what God is saying is that when all of these things have occurred, then I'm going to do something else. And it's as if God opens up the portal of time and he shows us what is on the horizon, what is going to take place. Listen to what he says beginning in verse 28. He says, I will pour out my spirit upon all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. In those days I will pour out my spirit even on servants, men and women alike, and and I will cause wonders in the heaven and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun will become dark and the moon will turn blood red before that great and terrible day of the Lord arrives. But everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. For some on Mount Zion and Jerusalem will escape, just as the Lord has said, there will be among the survivors whom the Lord has called. He first tells us that there will be a time when God's Spirit is given to all people. You see, in the Old Testament, that's not how it was. God's Spirit would be given to select people at select times. But His Spirit would not dwell in man. But in Joel chapter 2, verse 28, we're told of a time when God's Spirit will be given to all believers. And that occurred in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost. Peter, as he is preaching, even tells us that what these believers are experiencing is the fulfillment of this prophecy. And so the Spirit is given. That's happened already for us. But then he tells us about something else here that hasn't yet been fulfilled. He talks us about the sun being dark and the moon turning red. Jesus talks about these kind of things in in Matthew 24. In chapter 3, 
Joel tells us about, about the armies of the world gathering in the valley of Jehoshaphat. And, and that word literally means the Lord judges. In other words, there's going to come a, a time in the future when, when there are cataclysmic events that take place. And, and eventually the armies of the world are going to gather to fight against God. That hasn't taken place. But it will. Can I let you in on a little secret? God wins. God wins. You better pick the winning team. So he tells us that that the Spirit is going to be given to all his children. He tells us that there is going to be this time of tribulation, the day of the Lord, and And the culmination will be when the armies of the world fight against God and God wins. But that's not the end of the story. He tells us there's coming a day when God will make his home with his people. Wow. Oh, what a day that will be. You see, the Bible says now we see through a glass darkly, but then we will see face to face. Here's what it says. It says, in that day the mountains will flow with sweet wine, the the hills will flow with milk, water will fill the stream beds of Judah, and a fountain will burst forth from the Lord's temple. And then it goes on to say, and the Lord will make my home in Jerusalem with my people. Oh, what a day that will be. So what are the key truths we can learn about God? Here's the first one. God's judgment is sure. God's judgment is sure. Understand that. Judgment is coming. The Bible says we must all appear before the judgment seat of God. Sometimes judgment comes to us here on this earth because of choices we make. But one day, someday, we will all appear before the judgment seat of God. Now here's the good news. Our sins have already been judged. Our sins were judged on the cross when Jesus Christ died in our place. And so your sins have already been judged. That's good news. But judgment is coming. And you better be ready. Here's the second truth. God's mercy is offered. You see, God's judgment is sure, it's coming, and we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ to give an account of the life we've lived, to give an account of the decisions we've made, but there is good news, God's mercy is offered to us. Joel says God is merciful and compassionate, he is slow to anger, he is filled with unfailing love. God's mercy is when when God gives us a reprieve. God's mercy is when God doesn't give us what we deserve. I deserve death. I deserve hell. Mercy is when God says, I'm not going to give you what you deserve. But God doesn't only give us mercy, God gives us grace. Grace is is God's blessings. His blessings that he bestows upon us. And we read about this in in chapter 2. 
God's blessings or, or when God gives us what we don't deserve. Mercy is when God holds back what we deserve. Sin that brings death and death that brings hell. But God's grace. God's grace is God says, I'm not only going to hold back what you deserve, I'm going to pour out my blessings on you. I'm going to give you more than you ever thought possible. God's judgment is sure. God's mercy is offered. Third, God's spirit is given. Here's what you need to understand. If you are a believer, a child of God, if you've been born again, God's spirit is living in you. That's the promise of Joel 2. 28. That's the promise that was fulfilled in Pentecost. That's the promise that has taken place every time a person has bent their knee, given their heart to Jesus since that day. His Spirit comes to live in us and make us brand new. And so what this is saying is you don't have to face life alone. The indwelling Spirit of God Almighty is living in you. Now, I, I don't know how unbelievers do it. But I know how I've faced the last two weeks. I've faced the last two weeks because of God's indwelling spirit. Whenever I've gotten down, whenever I've gotten discouraged, whenever I begin to have questions, whenever the enemy begins to attack, God's Spirit just comforts me. God's Spirit teaches me and reminds me of truths. You don't have to go through life alone. But understand, God's Spirit is not just given so that we can have comfort in the difficult times of life. God's Spirit isn't just given to teach us. God's Spirit is given to empower us. Empower us for a mission. That's what it says in Joel 2.28. God's Spirit will be given and everyone, even, even the, the servants will begin to prophesy. What does that mean? They will begin to deliver the message of God. Isn't that what it says in Acts 1.8? You'll receive power when the Spirit of God comes on you. And you will be my witness in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Listen very carefully. The indwelling Holy Spirit doesn't show up when you have goosebumps because you really enjoyed the song we just sang. The indwelling Holy Spirit doesn't show up just because you had some ecstatic experience. The indwelling Holy Spirit is evidenced by the fact that you and I begin to tell the world that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's why he gives his spirit. Comfort, teaching, those are all great, wonderful, secondary things. But His Spirit is given to us so that in power we can share the hope that we have in Christ. 
God's judgment is sure. God's mercy is offered. God's spirit is given. But there's one final thing. God's promises are sweet. And we see these promises in chapter 3, verse 16, through the end of the book. I want you to listen to how John describes some of these promises in Revelation 21. He says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The old heaven, the old earth had disappeared, and the sea was also gone. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven like a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's home is not among his people. He will live with them. They will be his people. God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things, they're gone forever. And the one sitting on the throne said, look, I am making everything new. And then he said to me, write this down. For what I'm about to say is trustworthy, it's true. And he also said, it is finished. I am the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end. To all who are thirsty, I will give freely from the springs of water of life. All who are victorious will inherit all these, listen, all these blessings. And I will be their God. And they will be my children. Oh, God's promises are sweet. Life here on planet earth is full of disappointments. It's filled with pain. It has its share of heartache. That's just life on planet earth living in a fallen world. But bless God, this isn't all there is. We have something good to look forward to. And God's promises are better than anything we could ever possibly imagine. And so on the one side we've got God's judgment, that is certain, it is sure, it's coming. And on the other side, we've got God's promises of his his provision, God's promises of his presence. For me, that choice, it's really a no-brainer, isn't it? God's judgment, living apart from God forever. God giving us what we want, life without Him. Or God's blessings and His presence forever. I'm choosing this one every time. So what do we do? We go back to Joel chapter 2. Verse 32 says this. The Apostle Paul quoted this in Romans 10, but Joel said it first. He said, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone. You say, but you don't know what I've done. Everyone. You don't know where I've been. Everyone. You don't know how far I've fallen. Everyone. 
Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But here's the thing. When the Lord calls, we have to respond. In Proverbs 124, it says, I called you so often, but you wouldn't come. I reached out to you, but you paid no attention. There's no one here in this room who is going to be able to stand before God one day and say, God, why didn't you give me a chance? He's given you chances. He's given you one now. The only question is, what will we do with it? Verse 32, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. I want you to bow your head. I want you to close your eyes. With your head bowed, with your eyes closed. Nobody looking around. I don't want anybody to leave. That would just be downright rude. This is a holy time. If you're here right now, and you need to give your heart and life to Jesus, then you need to Call on him while there is time. You need to turn to him while there is time. You've got time now. You don't know if you'll have time tomorrow. You don't know if you'll have time next week. You've got time now. If you've never given your heart and life to Jesus, you need to do this. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So if that's what you need to do, then I want to encourage you right here, right now to pray this prayer. Dear God Almighty, I'm so sorry. Sorry that I've lived life my way. I'm sorry that I've given you token appreciation. Tired of living that way. Tired of being a rebel tired of acting like I'm God I'm the center of the world I know I'm not forgive me I know you love me I believe that my sins were judged on the cross I believe that Jesus died in my place I believe that he rose from the grave defeating sin. And right here, right now, I'm giving my heart to you. Take control. Thank you, Jesus, for hearing my prayer. Thank you for saving me.